The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. When Russ Faria isn't tinkering away on motorcycles in a small repair shop in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, he's taking off on spontaneous wilderness trips or hanging out on the front porch of his mobile home. A modest and humble life Russ has become incredibly grateful for. For him, it's the little things he now lives for, like trying to save a baby starling he named Earl and cozying up in bed each night with his fiancée, Carol, as they watch TV, never taking a single day for granted, because over a decade ago, he almost lost it all. Not only did he lose his wife, he lost his freedom and was facing the possibility of losing his life after being wrongfully convicted of murder. Join me now as we take a look into a case with so many twists and turns, it's made its way into a dramatized series. The Thing About Pam starring Renee Zellweger. However, in this version of events, Pam Hupp takes a back seat as we focus on the destruction she left in her wake, her victims, the survivors, and how Russ Faria was left picking up the pieces of his life, ignited by a single mission to prevent his experience from ever happening to someone else. On December 28th, 2011, at the St. Louis Police Department in Missouri, Russ Faria took a seat in a specially designed chair. Beneath him was a finely tuned motion sensor. Strapped around his chest and abdomen were special tubes designed to detect subtle changes in breathing patterns. Russ was also hooked up to a heart rate, blood pressure, and perspiration monitors, all feeding into a laptop with the screen turned away from him. For the past 15 hours, detectives had grilled Russ about his whereabouts and actions the night before, simply refusing to believe anything he told them. Russ hoped the polygraph would finally put an end to the questioning and finally prove he was actually telling the truth. After all, he had nothing to hide. The lie detector test started as they always do, establishing a baseline using simple, easy, verifiable questions like Russ's name, birth date, address, etc. But then came the real questions. Do you intend to tell me the truth? Did you kill Betsy Faria? Did you kill Betsy Faria with a knife? Do you know for sure who killed Betsy Faria? The questions themselves were no doubt painful reminders. Russ's wife had just been horrifically murdered. Regardless, Russ continued to confidently answer no. And just like that, the polygraph was suddenly over. Shortly after that, I was taken into a small interview room, and that's where Detective Ray Floyd, who had been one of the ones questioning me the night before, and into the day, 
informed me that I failed the polygraph 100%. And there was an ensuing 45-minute conversation where Detective Ray Floyd accused me 77 times of killing my wife, and 77 times I said I didn't do it. At the end of that time, I'd had enough, and a little switch went off in my head and said, they're not trying to help me at all. They're trying to put me away. So I asked for a lawyer and was promptly told that as soon as I asked for a lawyer, that meant I did it and was guilty, and it was promptly put into handcuffs. To this day, Russ has never actually seen the results of his polygraph test, the hard copy suspiciously missing, and the camera supposedly recording the test. Well, it allegedly malfunctioned. Confused, exhausted, and with no time to process his grief, Russ was cuffed and taken away to the Lincoln County Jail. He knew he was innocent and therefore must have passed the polygraph. So why were the detectives so convinced he murdered Betsy? 24 hours earlier, Russ had been living a normal, simple life. He had a loving wife, a good home, hobbies he enjoyed, game nights with a group of friends, and weekly meals with his elderly parents. But in a blink of an eye, Everything changed, and here was Russ now, potentially facing the death penalty. None of it made any sense. It was like a twisted, horrible nightmare, one he wouldn't wake up from for four long years. Twenty-five years earlier in the mid-90s, Russ met Betsy Meyer while she was working as a clerk at a local convenience store in O'Fallon, Missouri. Betsy and I really hit it off, and uh, eventually she ended up asking me out, and uh, we went out on a date to the local casino and really hit it off, decided to hang out a little bit more. She had a DJ business at the time, so she asked me to go on a couple shows with her. So I went, and it was really enjoyable, and we started doing some DJing, and she was in the middle of a divorce, and eventually she got divorced, and then we moved in together, and within about a year or so of that, I asked her to marry me. We were married February of the year 2000. After marrying Betsy, Russ became a stepfather to two daughters, nine-year-old Leah and five-year-old Mariah. Besides motherhood in her DJ business, Betsy also kept herself busy working in the insurance industry while maintaining a healthy and fulfilling social life. In fact, Betsy had so many friends, her mother once stated, Betsy had 10 or 20 best friends. One friend would claim, Betsy had zillions of them. Like a lot of marriages, Betsy and Russ had their ups and downs, but were committed to working through them. We had our ups and downs through the years. Uh, we separated a few times. I guess it was around 2007, 2008. Betsy says, you know, uh, I found this new church to go to called Morningstar. And, you know, hey, if we want to make a go of this, I'd like you to try it out. So we did. And they were just starting a sermon series on marriage and relationships. So uh, that was really beneficial. And we met with the pastor. We were working on a relationship and eventually it, it blossomed again. And we were having a great time and enjoying life, making some new friends. But just as Russ and Betsy's marriage and life together seemed to be its healthiest, they received some devastating news. Late 2009, 
I found a lump on her breast and suggested she go get this checked out. After some tests, Betsy received news nobody ever wants to hear. She had stage 3 breast cancer. But as devastating as those words were, Betsy was determined to beat it. And over the course of the next year, underwent rounds of chemotherapy, radiation, as well as a full mastectomy. And finally, the Farias heard some good news. And in early 2011, she was declared cancer-free. And so that was some exciting news, and we were very happy, and all of our family and friends, of course, were. And went about scheduling a cruise to celebrate being cancer-free, which she scheduled for November of that year. When about the year she had her uh, reconstructive surgery, I believe in March or April of 2011, we were on a vacation in Rhode Island, and we got a call from her doctor and said, you know, I really don't like what I'm seeing here. Her wounds weren't healing exactly right. You should probably go see your oncologist again. During what Russ describes as a very emotionally difficult meeting with Betsy's oncologist, they were informed Betsy's breast cancer had spread to her liver, and by that point, inoperable. So you have to ask the hard questions and get the hard answers at that point. You know, we came to terms with it. There's good days and bad days when you're going through something like that. But she decided she was still going to go on this cruise in November. We were still going to have fun. We're going to call it a celebration of life cruise. So therefore, we went ahead and went on the cruise and had a great time. She got to fulfill a lifelong dream of swimming with the dolphins. And uh, when we returned from the cruise, that was right around the time of Thanksgiving and that we had a nice Thanksgiving and then went into the Christmas season in December. Had a really wonderful Christmas. Of course, when you know that somebody might not be around too many more Christmases or holidays and whatnot, you might go a little bit out of your way and take a few more pictures or buy an extra gift or whatever the case may be, just to enjoy that holiday that much more. And then I guess that's kind of what we did. Just two days after Christmas in 2011, Betsy was scheduled for a chemotherapy session. Over the past year, she'd spent the nights before and after her treatments at her mother's place, largely because her mom's house was about 20 minutes closer to the cancer center than the Faria's. It was convenient, saved on gas, plus was a good opportunity for Betsy to spend some extra quality time with her mother. However, that particular Tuesday night was different. Instead of staying overnight at her mom's, Russ planned to swing by and pick her up and bring her back home. We texted throughout the day about our plans for the day and the evening. I was supposed to pick her up because I had a normal weekly event scheduled with some friends where we normally played role-playing games or watched movies, what have you. That particular night, we had one of our friends that wasn't able to make it. So we were planning on watching some movies or playing a different game. And then I was going to pick up Betsy afterwards. So, I guess around 5 o'clock that day or so, a little bit later than that, I left my house. And Betsy messaged me, I think. Well, my friend Pam wants to bring me home. The Pam Russ mentioned is Pam Hupp, an old friend Betsy met 10 years earlier while working at State Farm Insurance. 
and although Pam and Betsy hadn't been that close over the years, they began spending more and more time together since Betsy's diagnosis, with Pam often giving Betsy rides to appointments, even sometimes sitting with her through her chemo sessions. But that day was supposed to be different. Betsy had messaged Pam earlier that morning, telling her another friend would be taking her to chemo. An old family friend from Texas she wanted to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with. But instead of getting that one-on-one -on -one time like she planned, Pam showed up unannounced at the treatment center anyway. And although Betsy was stunned, she didn't make a big deal about Pam's uninvited arrival, even agreeing to let Pam drive her home after she insisted. For me, it would have been about two minutes out of my way to pick her up, bring her home on my way home. For Pam, it's an hour round trip out of her way on a dark, cold December night. So okay, that's fine. When I left the house, I had some errands to run. I had to get some gas and cigarettes. And she'd asked me to pick up dog food. I picked up the dog food and picked up a couple of drinks to go over to my friend's house. And so I made it over to my buddy's house around six o'clock or so. And we proceeded to watch the newest Conan movie. I guess around about nine or so, we all decided there was call it a night. Having not eaten dinner, I stopped at the local Arby's to pick up a couple of sandwiches and drove the 30 minutes or so home. If it sounds like Russ described the most normal, uneventful night among friends, well, that's because that's exactly what it was. A normal, uneventful evening that could be 100% verified through security cameras at gas stations and shops. The friends with him at game night along with the time-stamped receipt from Arby's. But Russ's normal, uneventful night was about to abruptly come to an earth-shattering end after stepping foot inside his house. I parked the truck, and I had the dog food in the back seat, grabbed that, threw it over my shoulder, and proceeded to walk into the house and call for Betsy to see where she was. And uh, there was a little foyer, and I put the dog food by the door that went out to the garage, Started taking off my jacket. Had to walk past the stairs at that point. When I made it to that point, I was uh, confronted with a sight that nobody should have to see. County 911, what is the location of your emergency? <laughs> Hello? Hello? Hey, who am I speaking with? My name is Russell Faria. Russell, what's going on there? <laughs> I just got home from a friend's house. And, and, and my wife, my wife killed herself. She's, she's, she's on the floor. Okay, Russell, I need you to calm down, honey, okay? I need you to calm down, take a couple deep breaths. We're going to get somebody on the way there, okay? Russ had good reason to jump to the conclusion Betsy had taken her own life, having struggled off and on with clinical depression. There had been instances where Betsy's behavior was cause for concern. We're talking about a person here that one had suffered from depression most of her life and was even on medication for it and from time to time go off of her medication and then have an episode she had even threatened suicide a few times previous and then you throw in the fact that at this point the cancer was in her liver and it was stage four and she was terminal it was a natural conclusion i thought to jump to not long after police arrived Russ was asked if he'd voluntarily go down to the station and allow police to interview him. I asked multiple times if I could 
call my mother or somebody, and I kept being curtailed and denied. I'd even asked a few times whether or not I was arrested and kept being told no on that front, even though I asked to write out a statement and sign that. And even when they brought the Miranda for me to sign, I asked, am I under arrest? And they said no, vehemently. While police were busy interviewing Russ, detectives were busy investigating the crime scene. And immediately, one of the first things they realized was that Betsy's death was obviously not a suicide. In total, Betsy had suffered 55 stab wounds, more wounds than even the Manson family murder victims. In what would become one of the defining moments of this case, detectives naturally wondered how anyone could have possibly assumed this had been a suicide. It only takes watching a few crime shows to know that in homicide investigations like this one, there are always three obvious first suspects, the last person with the victim, the spouse, and the person who discovered the body. Russ checked two of those boxes. Combining this with the fact that Russ had reported Betsy's death as a suicide, it's somewhat understandable why law enforcement made him their key suspect from the get-go. I'm not sure exactly how long into the questioning, but they informed me that they were performing an autopsy on Betsy and that they were at 25 wounds and counting. And they said, you know, that wasn't a suicide. So I realized that, okay, she did not kill herself. So now we're into the mode of trying to find out who did it. And that's, you know, I had informed them everything of my actions. I also informed them of my conversations with Betsy and let them know that Pam was the last person that Betsy would have seen. But I didn't think Pam was a bad person. I'd only met her maybe half a dozen times over the course of 10 years. You know, and she even said that herself initially in interviews. And so it didn't really have an uh, impression of her as a person. Didn't know of anybody that didn't like Betsy. Never met anybody she didn't like. So this had to be, somebody had to have broken in there is what I was thinking. And, you know, they were asking me questions. I was trying to answer them. Russ had already been interrogated by police for more than 15 hours by the time they informed him how many times Betsy had been stabbed. But unbeknownst to Russ, police had also been very busy interviewing family, friends, and potential witnesses at the same time. Almost everyone they talked to described Russ as being nothing but a loving and doting husband to Betsy. Almost everyone, everyone that is, except Pam Hopp. Officers showed up to Pam's house just before 7 a.m. on the morning of Betsy's murder, about eight hours after Russ's interview had started. Being the last person with Betsy, it was only natural they wanted to speak to her too. And once they did, they were in for quite a surprise. Pam dropped bombshell after bombshell, painting a very disturbing picture of Russ and Betsy's relationship, giving police everything they needed to ensure themselves Russ had murdered his wife. In her interview, Pam claimed Betsy recently became frightened of Russ and that she didn't like going home. According to Pam, Betsy was constantly discussing leaving Russ, even divorcing him. And then she said something that really raised detectives' eyebrows. 
Betsy had apparently confided in her that Russ had recently started playing a sick game with her. A game where he'd hold a pillow over her face and tell her, this is what it's going to feel like when you die. She also added that Russ had become obsessed with talking about all the life insurance money he'd get once Betsy eventually died from cancer. And just before the interview ended, Pam also insinuated to detectives she believed Russ had tried killing Betsy just weeks earlier with a bottle of poison blue Gatorade. Of course, all of the information Pam was providing was being relayed back to detectives who were still speaking to Russ at the station, turning the formal interview into an act of interrogation. But then they're telling me, telling me that one of Betsy's friends were telling her about me playing a game, holding a pillow over her face, saying this is what it feels like to die. And I was like, who would say this about me? I, I couldn't believe any of it. It was just incredible. At a certain point, the frustration, I guess, finally gets big enough and, and anger, of course. The little switch goes on in your head. And at that point, you have to say, I need a lawyer. If I had it to do over again, I would have asked for a lawyer as soon as I was asked to go to the police station. But again, you're in shock and there's a lot of things going on. Nobody really knows how they would react until they're in that situation. And again, you think that the police are the guys that are there to help you. And I didn't have the common sense or didn't have it in that moment to ask for a lawyer, and I should have. And if you're innocent, you don't think you need one, but I'm living proof that you do. Police are many times uh, trained to get a confession not to solve a crime. They pressure you so hard, eventually some people may break and then do. I was fortunate enough that I didn't kept my head enough to stand by my story and stand by what I said and stand by the truth. Acting on the information coming from Pam, investigators now believed they discovered a motive. The detective interviewing Russ stated, you only have one person with a motive, money, the oldest motive in the world. But perhaps the detective hadn't been informed of everything Pam had been saying in her interview. If he had, he would have realized he was on the right track. Money was indeed the oldest motive in the world, but it wasn't Russ with the motive. There was someone else, the only witness deliberately casting suspicion on Russ. You know, in the police department, just like in the military or any organization, you have some people that are higher up than others. And the people that are lower down don't get all of the information that the people in the higher ups get. And if the higher ups lie to the people that are lower down, they only have that to go by. That's what happened with some of the officers in my case, at least one that I know of. During Pam's interview, she brought up something that should have 100% been a red flag to investigators. Just four days before Betsy's murder, Betsy had secretly changed the beneficiary of a $150,000 life insurance policy from Russ to Pam. Of course, Pam had an explanation. She always did. According to her, because Betsy had become fearful of Russ, she'd been thinking about leaving him and didn't want him to get her insurance money. She'd also apparently felt her daughters, Leah and Mariah, 
were too young and irresponsible to be given the money. So instead, Betsy asked Pam if she'd become the beneficiary, ensuring Leah and Mariah were financially taken care of in a responsible way before giving them the rest of the money when they were older. And because Pam was such a good friend to Betsy, she happily agreed. Why police consider this as a reasonable explanation is anyone's guess, but they did. Not long after being taken to the Lincoln County Jail, a lawyer showed up for us and was able to get him released because police didn't feel they had quite enough evidence yet to officially charge Russ with murder. With one painful ordeal seemingly behind him, another one lay ahead, Betsy's funeral. Russ spent the next few days organizing, and on January 3rd, 2012, those who knew and loved Betsy came together to say their goodbyes. But grief wasn't the only emotion on display. Tensions and divisions among family and friends had already begun to emerge. They took two camps almost immediately of Betsy's family and my family. And Betsy's family, for whatever reason, was believing what they were being told. And my family and friends were believing the other way because they knew me as their family member, as their friend. Knowing tensions were high, Russ did what he could to keep the peace. He arranged two services for both families and even agreed to pay for all of it. Betsy had grown up Catholic and we had converted to Methodist, so I agreed to, for Betsy's family side of the family, to do a Catholic service in the morning time and then do a service at the church where Betsy and I went, which was the Methodist church, in the evening. And that went on. Uh, during the funeral, there were a few outbursts, one of which where one of Betsy's aunts hit me in the chest and said, how could you do this? And was accusatory towards me. After which my mother heard about, and my mother's a small Sicilian woman. And if you ever heard about any kind of small Sicilian women, they, they got a lot of dynamite inside. You don't provoke them and you don't attack their children. And so she went after the, the gal who picked up a baby so that my mother wouldn't hit her. And uh, then Pam and Mark showed up and started a verbal altercation with members of my family, my sister, my brother, my mom, and my dad, you know, and created a scene there. It hurt Russ to see his family and friends displaying such animosity toward him and one another, but he thought the worst was behind him. He couldn't have been more wrong. Investigators working on the case had discovered one piece of evidence they believed could directly link him to Betsy's murder, a pair of house slippers with Betsy's blood on them that had been casually thrown into the back of his closet. But one striking fact was either overlooked or ignored. Although the slippers were covered in blood, not a single footprint was found anywhere in the house, not in the bedroom, not in the living room, not even in the pools of blood. How could this be? Did the killer take the time and effort to erase all traces of blood and then simply toss a key piece of evidence into a closet where detectives were certain to find them? The possibility that whoever put those slippers in the closet had wanted police to find them apparently had never crossed their minds. Using this evidence, the lead detective filed a probable cause statement for Russ's arrest 
with the county prosecutor, Leah Askey, and on January 4th, the day after Betsy's funeral, Russ was arrested and charged with murder. I was uh, using Facebook Messenger to message a cousin that was living in Chicago at the time. You know, he was expressing his condolences, and we were talking about getting together when he got back into town. And I heard kind of a commotion in the uh, kitchen area, at which point when I came out of the back bedroom to the police basically pushing their way past my elderly mother and father, and my father trying to let them know, you know, you can't come in here without a warrant. Them saying that they had one, which I never saw. And they put a gun to the back of my head, put handcuffs behind me and said I was under their arrest for the murder of my wife. And they promptly took me out and uh, placed me in their detective car. Uh, Patrick Carney was behind the wheel. Ryan McCarrick put me in the passenger side, seat belted me in. You know, when somebody's handcuffed behind their back and seat belted in, they're a big danger too. So he had to get behind me in the back seat and put his gun to the back of my head and let me know that if I even breathed the wrong way, he was gonna paint the windshield with my brains. He proceeded to hold that gun to my head through an entire 30 minute car ride back to Troy, Missouri. That wasn't exactly the smoothest ride in the world. So I, I'm glad the thing didn't have a hair trigger. They booked me in and processed me and then gave me the nice orange clothes that everybody enjoys wearing and had to face the music of being in jail. To even label this investigation as a case of so-called tunnel vision would be a massive understatement. It didn't seem to matter that Russ's alibi was airtight and that it would have been impossible for him to have murdered Betsy in the way they were claiming. It also didn't seem to matter. There was another obvious suspect, one who had no alibi, outrageously suspicious financial motives, and who had repeatedly changed her versions of the night's events multiple times during her interviews with police. It also didn't seem to matter that Pam Huck was the single source of almost all the circumstantial evidence against Russ. Nope, the term tunnel vision is much too generous for this case. Railroaded would be more accurate. But there was one bright light amidst the darkness Russ's life had become. His cousin Mary who just so happened to formally work for one of the best criminal defense lawyers in St. Louis. And because she believed so deeply in Russ's innocence, she reached out to him. And his name was Joel Schwartz. When she worked for him 10 years prior, he was just starting out. You know, he'd just gotten a job on his own, just left the public defender's office, actually. Got out on his own and Mary worked for him for a short period of time. And they got to know one another, and so she remembered him. Uh, she called him and asked, had he seen this? And he confirmed that, asked, had he remembered her? And he said, yes. And she says, well, this is my cousin, and there's no way he did this, and I need you to go meet with him. And Joel agreed to do that without even getting a retainer from Mary, which she brought down the next day. But he came to see me, and I'm not sure how long our meeting went. It might have been an hour or two. But the important thing that I got from that meeting was here's a person I didn't even know, but I got the impression that he believed me and that he believed in me. So that said, I signed the paperwork to hire him as my lawyer, even though I didn't know how we were gonna pay for this guy. But Mary took care of that and her husband. I'm very thankful to her to this day for, for doing that for me. Thanks to Mary, 
Russ had managed to retain a fierce defense lawyer who truly believed in his innocence and was ready to do whatever it took to prove it. But even the best lawyers need a little help from their clients. And for Russ and Joel, the bulk of the help came from Russ's cousin Mary and his sister Rachel. There's a lot of stuff that the lawyer needs help with. And, and her and my sister Rachel were doing a lot of that and going and meeting with Joel several times a week while I was locked up. And very early in, Mary said, you know, hey, you need to look at this woman, Pam Hub, and gave him some information about her and some of the things that she observed over the Christmas holiday. And Joel started looking into that, and he had his, uh, his co-counsel, Mr. Nate Swanson, start looking into that. And uh, it looked very damning for Pam. And Joel, when he had met with me and, and finally got that information, he's like, you know, this is a misunderstanding. We're going to get you out of here in a matter of weeks, probably. And he went and met with the prosecutor and said, you know, you might want to look at this other person over here. And she doubled down then, you know, and said, well, I've already gone to the press and so-and-so and said, I've got our man. And Joel even offered to smooth that over with the press and, and make her actually look good. But uh, she didn't want any of that. She decided she was going to go through with a trial. So Joel informed me of that. And of course, he and Mary and other members of my family were bringing me information about Pam. It didn't take long for us to figure out that Pam Hupp was most likely suspect and needed to be looked at in this case. Now that the prosecutor was doubling down, despite Joel's best efforts to change her mind, Joel and Russ set about creating the most rock-solid defense they could muster. Every single minute of Russ's alibi was either witnessed or could be accounted for and verified. Joel even obtained phone records that corroborated every bit of it. The police posited that Russ had killed Betsy in what they claimed was a 10-minute window between coming home and calling 911. But to Joel, this seemed easy to disprove. The EMTs and firefighters who arrived first on the scene described Betsy's body as cold to the touch. Her blood had coagulated and rigor mortis had already set in. All three of these facts were simply impossible if Russ had just murdered her minutes before. Rigor mortis begins setting in within two hours of death at the earliest. This combined with all the damning circumstantial evidence pointing in Pam's direction seemed like it should have been enough to convince a jury of his innocence. Even more than that, Joel believed he had enough evidence against Pam to successfully prosecute her. The prosecution, however, was relying on Pam Hupp to be their star witness against Russ, almost entirely based on flimsy circumstantial evidence, as well as Pam's lies. But they also had a few underhanded legal maneuvers in their back pocket as well. Daniel Dildine was scheduled to retire at the end of 2011, and a new judge was already elected, was going to take the office in January of 2012, named Chris Kunza Minimeyer who, ironically enough, went to high school with Leah Askey. So, Leah knowing that, I think she made a plan. Something I didn't know that prosecutors can do, but they dropped and refiled my charges. But when they drop and refile your charges, if you've been waiting, say, a year to go to trial, you're at the front of the line. Everybody that's waiting for trial is in line. And when they drop and refile your charges, you immediately go from the front of the line right back to the back of the line which I think is shady and should not be allowed. But 
that's the way it happened. She knew that it was going to be delayed until after the first of the year when her buddy would be on the bench. And sure enough, that's what happened. And so we went through almost a whole nother year of pre-trial motion discovery and prosecution could never put a time frame on when I was supposed to have committed this crime. One of the theories that they had was I came home at 9.30, committed the crime, cleaned up, changed my clothes, and then called the police all in 10 minutes time, which was physically impossible unless you're Superman. Russ and Joel were forced to wait another whole year to bring his case to trial. Another year where Russ was kept in jail away from family and friends. And once the trial finally began in November 2013, it became all too apparent just how important a role the new judge would play in the prosecution of Russ Faria. Eventually, we had our trial, and Joel kept getting cut off. He was barred from getting into any of the insurance information, barred from using what they call a Saudi defense, which is some other dude did it, uh, the other dude being Pam Hupp in this case. He was barred from asking her any questions about the insurance, even though the prosecution was allowed. And Joel said, well, that opens the door. And the judge said, no, no, not for you. And so I kind of likened it to a boxer fighting a fight with his one arm tied behind his back. It's really hard to be effective, but I thought that he got enough information out there to create enough of a doubt that I would be found innocent. You heard it correctly. In an astonishing decision, the judge ruled to suppress any discussion in front of the jury that Pam Hupp had become Betsy's life insurance beneficiary just four days before the murder. And beyond that, Joel was barred from insinuating that Pam, rather than Russ, was the person who should really have been on trial. Both of these decisions allowed the prosecution to present Pam as a credible witness and prevented the jury from hearing key details that almost certainly would have influenced their ultimate verdict. But Joel and Russ still had their rock-solid alibi. He had security cameras, multiple eyewitnesses, receipts and cell phone tracking data. And the first medical personnel on the scene testified that Betsy's murder had most likely occurred hours before the 911 call, not minutes, as the prosecution was seeming to suggest. Even without being able to point the finger at Pam, their defense was still looking like a slam dunk. The prosecution, however, had one more trick up their sleeve, a surprise attack. During closing arguments, Leah Askey offered up an entirely new theory of what had happened that night. And to say it was so outlandish, neither Joel or Russ ever expected the jury to believe any of it either. Out of nowhere, and without a shred of solid evidence, Askey argued that not only Russ, but all of his game night friends had been involved in a twisted role-playing conspiracy to murder Betsy that night. Didn't it seem suspicious that Russ had gone to so many stores, almost like he was deliberately trying to get on camera and create an alibi? And wasn't it odd that every single game night friend gave police the exact same story when they were interviewed separately. According to the theory presented to the jury, Russ had driven home and murdered his wife probably sometime after 7 p.m. But what about the cell phone location records that seemed to disprove this? Well, this is where it gets crazy. 
Leah Askey hypothesized that Russ had deliberately left his cell phone with his game night friends to make it look like he'd been with them the entire time. And this apparently explained why Russ had used the landline to dial 911, because he didn't have a cell phone with him. She then claimed it was one of his friends who had gone to Arby's, got the receipt, and then brought both the receipt and cell phone back to Russ before the authorities arrived. After hearing Askey's ridiculous closing, both Russ and Joel were optimistic he would be found not guilty. After the jury adjourned for a few hours, they came back and the judge read the verdict of murder in the first degree as guilty and the verdict for armed criminal action, which I was also charged with, as guilty. And I was sentenced to life without possibility of parole, plus an additional 30 years. It had been nearly a year since Betsy's murder and Russ's arrest, and just when Russ believed he was on the precipice of victory, his entire world was shattered for a second time. Even with the trimmed down amount of information that the jury was, was allowed to hear, I had still thought that they got enough, you know, that we had done enough, that Joel had done enough for there to be a reasonable doubt. The hardest part was hearing my mom, especially because I'm a mama's boy. I'm probably the biggest mama's boy you'll ever meet. Look me up in the encyclopedia. My picture's right next to the definition of mama's boy. But uh, that was probably the hardest, most devastating thing when I heard guilty. I was just, but when you hear your family and that behind you, that's, that one, that, that's the one that makes you want to just scream. Russ was soon whisked off to prison, where he was supposed to remain for the rest of his natural life. But despite the verdict, he never lost faith that Joel would figure out a way to fix the entire mess. And the family who had stuck by his side throughout the past year never lost faith either. Pam Hupp, on the other hand, was able to walk out of the courtroom a free woman with $150,000 of Betsy's life insurance still securely in her bank account. Money the jury was never allowed to even hear had been signed over to her. The prosecution's star witness. Acting on the advice of detectives, Pam placed $100,000 of the money into a revocable trust for Leah and Mariah. She was encouraged to do this, knowing it would make the prosecution look better if Pam appeared to be honoring Betsy's wishes to take care of her daughters. However, the trust was set up just one week before Russ's trial began, and perhaps predictably, just a few short weeks after Russ's guilty verdict, nearly all of Betsy's money that Pam had placed into the trust was revoked. Pam had taken it all back out, never intending on putting it back in. It's often said that the wheels of justice grind slow, but what about the wheels of poetic justice? If Pam had simply left the money in trust and given it to Leah and Mariah as they got older, this is where the story in all likelihood would have ended. With Pam home free and Russ behind bars, 
Instead, it was only the beginning. In part two, we examine the incredible domino effect of Pam's decision to swindle the insurance money for herself, an unbelievable series of events that would ultimately send Russ home free and see Pam behind bars. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows at free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.